If you enjoy this show, you will enjoy the new novel Alice Isn't Dead, a standalone, complete reimagining of this story. It's out now. Find it wherever you encounter books or at aliceisntdead.com. I don't know what to say. I think this is it. Is this it? This might be it. The story that we had been working on with Tamara Levitz at the LA Times, the one that laid out everything we knew about Bay and Creek and Thistle, that story's out now. Exhaustively researched. Connections and history even I hadn't known about, and I worked for Bay and Creek for years. We mosquitoes took what was inside of us and injected it into the whole country. There's no way down from here. Is this it? This might be it. I don't know what to say. I think this is it. by Jessica Nicole and Erica Livingston, produced by Disparition. Part 3, Chapter 6. This isn't it. Keisha screamed and pounded the ceiling of the cab. She sounded the truck horn, which was less like a holler of happiness and more like an enormous calf lowing for its mother. A mournful sound that prophesied what would happen to us next. But in that moment... We were carried by the raw feeling of it. She didn't know what to do with her hands, which was a little scary because she was the one driving. The truck wagged with her celebratory movements. Careful, I said, but I felt myself jumping in my own skin too. Who had time for careful when this much happiness was there for us to grab? We're done. That's what I was thinking what the air in my mouth tasted like. What every sound that came from my mouth said, even when I was too excited to form them into words. We're done. We get to go home. And before us, a life. Not that our problems would be fixed overnight. Even in my giddy moments, I didn't believe in magic, not the sorcerer kind, but I did believe in magic as it exists sleight of hand, a triumph of human ingenuity and determination, someone staring into a mirror, eyes bleary in their third hour of practicing the same simple palming of a coin. I believed in the magic of hard work and sacrifice, and hadn't we worked hard? And hadn't we sacrificed? I thought to turn on the radio and hear the result of what we had done. Someone sang to us in Spanish over a fluttering guitar, a song about a forest that was actually about a marriage. I spun the dial, finally a news station. The markets were up, or maybe they were down. I couldn't see how it could possibly matter. 
Why aren't they talking about this? Keisha asked, and I didn't have an answer for her. I kept searching. Uh, another news station. The latest on a contentious mayoral race in Philadelphia. What was happening? The world had been broken open, but life was going on as though it hadn't. I pulled off the road and into the parking lot of a diner. I needed to see that this was having an effect on people. It had to. It had to. We went inside and a smiling woman told us to sit anywhere. The TVs were on. Two movie stars were getting married and there was live coverage of the ceremony. On another channel, the president was flying to Phoenix to talk jobs numbers. Nothing about Bay and Creek or about Thistle. Nothing about the government's complicity in murder after murder. Hey, I said to a man at the counter. He looked up at me with the expression of anyone when they're annoyed by a stranger. Yeah, he said. What do you think of this stuff that came out? I asked. The, the government funding a secret program? Serial killers living on military bases? His eyebrows fluttered concern. He put up his hands placatingly. I don't go much into politics, he said. I didn't know what to say to that. I had less hope than Keisha going in because my career in this area had guarded me against hope, but even I couldn't believe what was happening here. Hey, I shouted. Do none of you read the news? Didn't you see your government is conspiring against you? We were asked quite energetically to leave the diner. I might have grabbed a guy's shirt and shaken him. I don't recall. For the next hour, I resembled a character from a cheap science fiction movie, running up to folks on the street and asking them to acknowledge the horror in the news, and none of them would. They set their eyes straight. They kept moving. What is wrong with all of you? I screamed. What is wrong with all of you? But it appeared from the outside that they were fine. The question that the world had was, hey, what's wrong with you? I sat in the truck. I reached within myself and found only despair. I had thought it was a matter of knowledge, that if all of them only knew. But that wasn't it at all. What I realized in that moment, in that truck, is that all of them already had known. Okay, maybe not the specifics, not the names, but the shape of it. Oh, they had known the shape of it for a long time. It is possible to know something and then choose to not know it. And all of us, all of us together had known and then chosen not to know. So giving them the information had only confirmed their chosen ignorance. That set us wandering. What was left? That had been our plan. There hadn't been a backup. I didn't see a way forward. So we just moved forward. Moved for months. Months of driving back and forth across the country without a clear idea of what even we were doing anymore. Why we were even still out here. What was left for us? 
for anyone who hoped for the good out of this country. A month after, out in the desert, near Slab City, where something monstrous sleeps under the sand and the cargo trains howl through the long empty and the golf courses dot out over the wasteland and the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, that greedy giant, builds its power plants and its miles and miles of lines, carrying the lights to Hollywood, the air conditioning to Malibu. We go for a hike in the Native American land near Palm Springs. A man sits by the trail a few miles up into the hills. It's so beautiful out here, he says as we pass. It really is, says Alice. They can't take that away from us, can they? (laughs) He said. I think about whose land we're on and how that story went. But I nod because what else could I do? Two months later, Eastern North Carolina. Not quite the seaside, but not the urbane research triangle either. Here there are farms and boarded up main streets, but signs still of life. A giant bird painted on the side of an old brick building. The animal's proportions and posture awkward, but its scale magnificent. A faux retro motel with pastel panes in its windows, a monument to color against the farm dirt plains. We stop and eat our lunch on the side of the road watching a farmer use a tremendous machine to plow acres and acres of field on his own. He has headphones on. I wonder which true crime podcast he's listening to. We started to talk about after. Not after our victory, but after our surrender. What if we gave up? What if we just found some quiet place to live out our lives, away from a war we could never win? It could be the two of us again, and we could live knowing but choosing not to know about the brutality we left behind. There could be peace in giving up. Three months later, we pass through Louisville, where I don't drink bourbon and don't see horse one, but do eat some good Ethiopian food at a place downtown with white plastic tables. It comes served in a styrofoam takeout box, the injera folded over and under the stews. Here in the far, far north of the south, really only the south in name, since it sits on the border with Indiana, which we can agree is one of the least southern states, Louisville is closer to Detroit than it is to Atlanta. The cook comes out for a smoke break, nods politely at us as we eat the food he just made. It's delicious, I say to him. He smiles. Family recipes. Three generations. He nods at his northern city in its southern clothes. A couple decades ago, none of them would eat it. Now they want to make sure it's authentic enough. He shrugs. Four months later in Chicago. Chicago looks like a seaside town, which is a real trick for the Midwest. But that lake. I had grown up thinking lake and envisioning the puddles I swam in at camp, but this is an expanse. 
Even from the top of the magnificent mile skyscrapers, you still can't see the other side. It holds frost within it, so even in that sweaty summer air, approaching it is like touching ice. You can feel the cold lift off of it from 20 feet away. A woman comes directly from the jogging path on the shore and flings herself into the freezing water. Ah! She shouts at us. Oh shit, I say back. It feels amazing, she says. Really, I say. Or terrible, she says. But the kind of terrible that's amazing. She slaps the water and screams again. We drive. And as we drive, I realize we're not alone. All of these people, all of these people in all of these places, they are waiting to be good. They are waiting for the world to be good. What they need is a way forward. It's not that they're choosing not to know. It's that they don't know what to do with what they know. I had thought it was a matter of knowledge, but it's a matter of organization. It's a matter of praxis. I thought about a woman slapping her palms upon Lake Michigan and a man cooking food from Ethiopia in a rust belt city of Bourbon. I thought about the people that come to the desert in California because they have nothing, and the people who come to the desert because they have everything, and the people who come to the desert because out past the highways you can cause all sorts of trouble. I thought about people who grow food in North Carolina, digging their hands into the dirt and who sit down to eat with the smell of soil lingering on their palms. We are a country defined more by distance than by culture. But that distance is defined by the people in it. We give context to our miles. We are the fine parts that make up the heavy machine that heaves global events forward. I thought about hands. I thought about thousands and millions of hands reaching for the spatula on hour eight at the grill top of a diner and reaching into a toilet at hour 12 at the gas station and reaching up to put the canned beans on the shelf at the supermarket and reaching down to help their child cross the street. I thought about millions of hands and what they could do if they all reached the same direction and grasped. And that's when I knew. It was as clear to me as a memory, as unshakable as my own breath. We were going to organize, starting with us and moving from there. This was a country made up of a distance of people and they could not be changed through headlines. They had to be organized one by one by one. And maybe some part of me had spent the last year waiting for Praxis to save us. But not anymore. We would have to become Praxis ourselves. That was it. That was it then. 
check out aliceisntdead.com for more information on this show and our merch, like the Alice Isn't Dead Map of America, tracing Keisha's three-season journey around the country with hand-drawn art of her many misadventures. Even if you don't buy it, just do yourself a favor, go to the store and look at it. Or get the stunning Alice Isn't Dead logo as a shirt or an enamel pin, and more, all of that at aliceisntdead.com. This show would not be possible without our Patreon supporters, such as the kind Reagan Sanders, the glorious Sibyl Honoré, the hilarious Corey Washington, the fabulous Stephen Pariser, the cheery Salome Kouavou, and the heavenly John Brothers II. If you would like to join these folks in helping us make this show, please check out patreon.com slash aliceisntdead, where you can get rewards like director's commentary on every episode, behind-the-scenes updates, bonus episodes, and a chance to read the Alice novel before anyone else. That's patreon.com slash aliceisntdead. Hey, Alice Heads, which is a name I just came up with for listeners of Alice Isn't Dead and that I don't think I'll ever use again. Ugh. Anyway, I'm releasing two books this year, which is a weird thing to say, but I've been working on both of these for years and I'm so excited for you to read them. Okay, first on May 11th, 2021, the first 10 years, two sides of the same love story. So there is a love story that happened behind the scenes of Welcome to Night Vale between me, Joseph Fink, and Meg Bashmaner, voice of the Night Vale credits and MC and tour manager for the live Night Vale show. In this memoir, we recount the first 10 years of our relationship, year by year, without consulting each other beforehand. It's a funny and romantic story about how differently we experience and remember our lives. Then, on July 20th, The Halloween Moon, my first ever novel for ages 10 and up. Esther Gold loves Halloween, until the year that Halloween night just won't end. Even she doesn't want Halloween to last forever. No matter your age, if you're a fan of Alice Isn't Dead, I think you're going to love this book. Get these books wherever you get your books. Today's quote. The Rubicon, we know, was a very insignificant stream to look at. Its significance lay entirely in certain invisible conditions. From Middlemarch, by George Eliot. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Night Vale Presents. Find out more about us and our shows at nightvalepresents.com.
Hello, iPod broadcast listeners. My name is Meg, and I am one of the esteemed tri-hosts of the beloved iBroad Good Morning Night Vale. I, along with my hilarious friends, fellow Night Vale actors, passionate eaters, and soft-hitting journalists, Symphony Sanders and Hal Lublin, are now over 100 episodes into our deep dive recap show of Welcome to Night Vale. We've tackled topics like soft meat crown head cannons, Cecil's fashion, and whether Steve Scones were really all that terrible, plus behind-the-scenes stories from the Night Vale creative family. And we've heard from listeners like you about queer representation, Night Vale named pets, major theories, minor questions, and of course, best and worst practices for, um, alternative spa therapy services. If you know, you know. Check out Good Morning Night Vale every other Thursday, wherever you get your eyebrods, eyecasts, pod broads, and podcasts. I think I like pod broads the best. I'm a real pod broad myself.